Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 18th, 2010, and my guest is Kevin Kelly. His latest book is What Technology Wants. Kevin, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Our topic today is technology and the ideas in your book. Uh, it's an extraordinary book, it, brimming with ideas, provocative examples, great writing. Uh, I just um, can't tell you how much pleasure and insight I got from reading it, and I look forward to talking about it with you. The central idea that underlies the book is that the technology that surrounds us is alive. It has its own forces of existence that we don't, do not fully control. And the book is about making the case for that idea and understanding the benefits and costs of those forces. I'd like to start by having you describe the world of technology, and in particular the term that you've coined to summarize this um, phenomenon – which is the technium. What, is, what do you mean by the technium? And why don't you just call it technology? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, they're, they're, the, the, the problem that I that kind of set out in the book to solve was the, um, a problem of coming up with a, a framework for understanding all the stuff that's in our lives. And... Um, uh, you know, we're kind of be we're surrounded by more and more of it, and we spend maybe more and more of our lives making it, or trying to market it, or trying to sell it. And um, it, it, I, I, and for me, trying to kind of understand how I should think about the, the new things coming along, it, it seems as if our kind of our theory of technology was it was just one thing after another, and um, one object, one gadget one invention after another, and um, that was pretty unsatisfying. It's not really a theory at all. And so I, I set out to look at it um, to see if there, I, you know, there was a framework. And um, the only way that I could see to, to approach it was to, to begin to look at it as if it was um, a system, because you can think of your, your cell phone or whatever it is that you carry in your pocket, um, that thing, it may only be the same size as, as a stone axe of long ago, which was made by one person, but the thing you have in your pocket requires maybe a thousand other technologies to create it and maintain it, make it operate, and each of those intermediate ones might depend on hundreds or thousands of others themselves. And so um, that uh, iPhone, let's say, is, is not a standalone entity in any matter. It's no different than, say, um, an orchid in the middle of a rainforest. It requires and depends upon many, many other organisms, many, many other technologies to to be and 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 exist. And I use the word, or I, I, I have been using the word technology to talk about both the gadget and this kind of ecosystem. Of all, we we talk about technology in kind of a plural um, to mean this ecosystem of everything 
that is connected to everything else and that is um, behaving as if it was like a rainforest. Um, but but because of that, because sometimes it's singular and sometimes it's plural, I found it very confusing. Um, and so to emphasize the fact that I'm talking about the the larger superorganism of all these technologies together, I call it the technium. And some people would say, well, that's kind of just basically culture, human culture. And I think culture does kind of convey the range of what I'm talking about because it does include everything that we've made, including the hardware stuff, but also includes the intangibles like a calendar and, and law and also the you know the the kind of works of art. You know the Lord of the Rings films, things that are um, that, that that are actually ex- expressions of uh, of the tools as well. Um, but the culture does not indicate or, or convey the way in which again this is a system. It's more than just a collection, like a, like a gallery or a museum of all these artifacts. The artifacts themselves are codependent on each other are intertwined and ecologically related in a, in, a, in a way that's very organic. And I think the technium for me was, uh, was a means to, to relay to the reader that this is a, a, a system, a, a kind of super organism, a super system of all the things that we've made with our minds. You might argue you've gone too far or you've not gone far enough. Some people would look at this web of interacting technologies and just say, well, come on, it's just it's just stuff we make. It's not really much different than uh, any other time in, in human history, and so we make a lot of stuff. The other view would say, boy, that's creepy. It's alive, uh, which suggests, as you do in the book, it, it wants things in some dimension. Yeah. Uh, so talk about that sweet spot and, and sure. those two extremes. Yeah, so at the one extreme is saying, well, it really is just um, nothing different than a very big novel, and, and you know it's it's just a, a creation um, that can never have any of its own autonomy whatsoever. And um, I, I think the the evidence against that would would simply be that um, there there are many attributes of selfhood of selfness that we know. Different parts of, of of this system exhibit, and we know also from other more um, uh, uh, I guess articulated systems, smaller subsystems that um, we've made in computers and elsewhere that we that that, that can exhibit certain aspects of, of selfhood. So we have systems that can repair themselves; they're self-repairing, and we have systems that. Um, like the internet, they can actually um, self-direct their traffic, and we have um, we have immune systems on the internet that actually have been created to 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 act as um, self-identity, to, to self-identify parts, and to uh, take out spam and um, as an alien uh, entity. We have um, self-governing systems, and so we we know that we can and have already created as aspects of autonomy, aspects of selfhood. And um, I think, um, you know, most, anybody who, any engineer, I think, could identify aspects of, of selfhood in the technium. And so 
Um, I'm simply arguing not, of course, that the technium is completely autonomous. Um, it, autonomy is not binary. It's not like there or not there. It's a continuum. And I'm arguing only that there is an emerging sliver of autonomy um, and uh, that that, of course, autonomy is increasing o- over time. Um, and so uh, it's not independent of us entirely, but there are aspects of it that are. So that's that one side to saying, okay, it's, there, there is something there. On the other side of saying, well, um, oh my gosh, you know, it's, um, it's out of control. Um, we're, we are, are absolutely part of this. We, and as I said, it's only, it's only a small portion of the autonomy. Um, we, we definitely are, the technium includes us and includes us as humans for, for several reasons. One is because it's, you know, it's, it's in its beginnings of its autonomy, and, and we are absolutely necessary for it to continue on. We're the reproductive organs of it right now. It can't reproduce without us. So we are an essential element in that way. But there's another way in which we are an essential part of the technium itself, and that is because we, uh, as humans, we have created our own humanity. We have... Um, engineered, or at least we have invented our own um, selves in to some degree. Again, obviously we're just a continuation of the primate line, but we also have added many things that other primates don't have, and we've added those with our minds. And so, we uh, just one example of many would be the, the our invention of cooking, which is a way to um, have an external stomach to digest foods that we would not ordinarily have been able to do biologically um, and that additional nutrition that we gained um, actually changed the size of our teeth and the shape of our jaw and the enzymes we have in our body um, and, and to the extent that we have, are now biologically different than we were before and we are now actually biologically dependent on long-term fertility for cooking so we have we have remade our own bodies with our minds, and we have done that in other other places. You know, when we domesticated milk yielding animals, we developed lactose intolerance and um, lactose tolerance, and um, we we are continuing to 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 basically accelerate the evolution of our own bodies with technology, which is now running a hundred times faster than it was even ten thousand years ago. So there is a there is a very real way in which we are the first domesticated animals and that we like other animals they are technologies and so we are self-created and when you are self-created that means that you are both the creator and the created and so we 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 inhabit both sides of this technium where we are both the creators of the technium and we are the created in the technium it's a simultaneous system um Let's um why don't you talk a little bit more about the um the selfhood idea? You give one very explicit example of a robot. Um t- tell that story and let me I want to ask you a question about yeah, so, 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 looking for a power source. Yeah. Um the the other word that I use in the title besides and I don't use technium in the title simply because it was a word that nobody would would understand, but in fact it's the book is really what the technium wants. 
And um, but the other kind of large looming word is the word want. And um, I, I hasten to say, uh, very, you know, very immediately that um, I, by want I don't mean um, a conscious, deliberate, uh, intelligent way that we want as humans that we say, oh, you know, I want some ice cream or I want to start my homework. I'm using want in the other way that we use want, which we do all the time, which is to say the cat wants to go outside, the plant wants light. So that tomato seedling in the window, um, it wants light and it will lean towards the light. And that leaning is what I'm talking about, the want. So basically I'm saying the technium leans in certain directions. Um, Whenever you have a system... Um, which is what I'm arguing the technium is. It's a system, and systems exhibit two very, and no matter where they are, whether they're natural or artificial systems, they exhibit two interesting phenomena. One is they they, they have a behavior uh, at the level of the systems that does not present in any of the parts. And so you have a system like a beehive. The hive itself has hive behavior, and that hive behavior cannot be found in any of the bees. It's and the technium behavior cannot be found in the, the iPhone. And um, the second thing is that any system that does have these behaviors exhibits certain biases in, in those behaviors, that there are certain constraints made by the system to, 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 to bend it in one tendency versus another. And it's inherent, and it doesn't really sort of matter um, about the individual parts, what they're kind of doing or not doing. It's just the, the system itself is complex enough that it will exhibit these behaviors that are not contingent on the, the, the actual um, behavior of the, of, the, of the bottom parts. And um, that's what I mean by want, that the technium, independent of our own choices, has certain tendencies, not all, but certain tendencies, certain leanings, certain driftings. And so the book is, in a certain sense, to, to look at that want. But... Uh, you know, I had an experience where I, I, I you know, could feel this sort of in unconscious, um, inanimate want, and that was when I went to visit um, Willow Garage, which was a um, startup in, near Stanford making uh, robots, and they had uh, a robot, I think it's PD2, I can't remember the actual name of it, but it has been programmed, you know, it, it has um, orders, to um, recharge itself by plugging its cord into uh, an available socket and, and, and it has been taught uh, how to identify those sockets but not where those sockets are or, where, or, 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 or when it needs to um, plug in or how to get there, which are all emergent. And so it roams through the building when it needs juice and um, will identify a plug and take grab its, with its arm, will grab its tail, so to speak, and plug in its core to to recharge its batteries. And um, I had the opportunity to stand between it, this robot, and the plug that it wanted. And it was, and and I could feel its want. It was was behaving in any way that we would say, like an animal that wanted to get out the door or wanted some food. And um, it was not conscious, it was not very intelligent, but it definitely 
wanted that. And I think I, I'm using the word want in that same way. We have the same issue in economics, um, which is a never-ending challenge for me when I teach. And I think it's the same challenge you face in trying to get people to understand the ideas in this book. We will say in shorthand, it's a useful shorthand, but it's misleading, the market wants. So in the in the face of, say, price controls, the market tries to get around them by degrading quality sometimes. Right. So what is what the heck does that mean? Well, what it really means is that all the individuals within the market pursuing their self-interest in the face of this new constraint are pushed to do something that would be actually counterproductive in the case of a of a uh, normal market, unconstrained market. So if a if a seller tried to degrade the quality of a product, uh, he'd lose customers, but in the face of a price control, he can gain customers by doing that because he can effectively evade the price control on behalf of the customer who can't get the good. Right. And so those kind of what we sometimes call shorthand market forces, those are all at work in these complex systems in ways that most of us aren't educated to think about or – and we don't have a language talking to talk about it very well, but what your book strives to do is give people a way to start thinking about that. Um, did you want to say something? I was going to ask you another question. No, no I mean I, I, I think you're absolutely true that, that, that you know – I, I kind of, in some ways, this is a book that's a follow-up to my, an earlier book called Out of Control, which was really about these uh, decentralized systems that great exhibit book. emergent behavior. Yeah, and book. I think you're absolutely right that, that, that people um, don't intuitively, or, or that we, actually, I think we have a, um, we can, a better acceptance of emergent behavior in nature. Yep. But um, when it comes to kind of the, our, our own artificial systems, we're very seem to be reluctant to, to, to accept emergent behavior there because, because we've made these things, and so we, 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 we kind, of, kind of project our own um, um, making on that and, 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 and don't realize that actually these systems can also exhibit emergent behavior that's not put into them by us as, as individuals. And I think... Um, uh, that may be changing over time. Yeah, we're, as, getting, we're making some progress. As, as people have more experience in, in, in dealing with these very large systems like the Internet. Yeah, well, it's, it's ironic because um, last, week pod, last week's podcast was, uh, if all goes well, was on uh, Adam Smith. And Adam Ferguson, a predecessor of Smith, uh, around 1750 or so, I think that's when he wrote it, he said, um, there are things that are the product of human action but not human design. So we're two and a half centuries later, and right. unless you study economics or technology, you don't really absorb that insight uh, the way you do if you're in those fields. It's bizarre. Yeah. But we're making progress. Two and a half centuries. We're getting there. <laughs> um, one of the startling – this is – it's not a central part of the book, but it's – for me, but it was utterly fascinating uh, – is your uh, claim that old technologies uh, – and old tools, in a particular example you give, they don't die, uh, which is was shocking to me that it's – and I think it's true. So talk about your Montgomery uh, Ward, I think it was, catalog experience, yeah. and why, that, why, is that, why is that interesting and important? Yeah, well, um, it, it's not central to my thesis, um, but it is maybe supportive of one aspect of, uh, of the manifesto in some ways. But the, it, it goes like this. Is basically, I, I, I posit that the technium is an absolute extension of the same evolutionary forces that run through 
um, biological life and, and the self, same self-organizing forces that um, were, have been working at 3.7 billion years of evolution, that they um, self-organized our minds, and that now our minds are, in some senses, a vehicle for the same self-organizing forces that are propelling the diversity of the technium, and that um, uh, be- because of that, um, they're, they're very the technium and biological evolution are very very similar. However, there are some differences, and one of the differences between um, technological evolution and biological evolution is a small one, but it, but it has one consequence, and that small one is is that. Uh, extinctions are real and permanent, and and uh, global extinctions of species uh, in evolution are real and permanent, and and, and a huge you know and a kind of a major component of of its history is that you know most most of the species that have ever been born are now dead or extinct, and um, in technology in the technium and in, in technological evolution. Um, there is rarely global extinction. Um, what happens is that um, uh, most technologies become obsolete in the sense that they diminish their role, but they don't ever completely disappear. And that's, I think, it's because they're more idea-based and can be resurrected so easily. And so, and this, this seems like a, a really just for a sec. If I may interrupt. It's, yeah. It seems like a ridiculously it, silly claim. Because yeah, it, it, come it, on, it, what, what do you mean? Right. Horse and buggy, the hand axe, the the the, the arrowhead. Yeah. There's there nobody. They, they don't exist anymore. Yeah, and and that's what I thought uh, originally too. In fact, just last night I was having a conversation with a VC guy who was just adamant about that, and I said, "Well, here's the problem: is is that um, when I started to look at this." Um, and I was, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, can I find an example of this? And my challenge was not just to find sort of an antique version of it existing in a, in a museum, but I was looking for cases where, you know, arrowheads or steam-powered cars, whatever the challenge, whatever the technology that someone challenged me with, I wanted to find a place where they were still making them brand And, um... What I found out from that was that you, um, you, we lost you there for a sec. They're still making them brand new, right? You said they're still making them uh, brand new, and um, I don't know what that's about. Uh, what's what's uh, I very quickly on the internet was able to find an example of of whatever the challenger had given to me a brand new steam powered valve for your steam powered car. Um, Turns out that they're making um, flint axes exactly the same way, using exactly the same tools, to the point where they're almost indistinguishable from the original uh, archaeological artifacts. Um, they're making them in huge numbers today, and, and so then, as a kind of a challenge to myself, um, I took uh, a page from the 1898 Montgomery Ward Sear Montgomery Ward mail order catalog which was basically kind of like your Walmart um, of uh, a century ago, where they had basically everything. And I, I, I took the most challenging page I could think of, which was um, the farm implements. I thought, okay, you know, they're definitely, these got to be completely gone. 
And, uh, and there's a lot of them, by the way. It's not like you know, it's not like, like a hoe and a and a and a plow. Yeah, there were things like corn, uh, you know, corn cob millers, or I mean, there were things I didn't have any idea what they were. Um, and I mean, I never even heard of these things. And um, very very quickly, we were able to identify that every single one of them is still being manufactured brand new. Now, recently, I had. Um, I was telling Robert Kerwich, the host of Radio Lab, science journalist, this idea, and he just was totally unbelieving. He says, "There's no way that could be true," and so he actually set an uh, intern and a researcher on a month. They spent a month going through the entire catalog, and they could not find a single thing that was still not being manufactured brand new. And so, the there may be something out there. I kind of identified maybe. Greek fire as, as a possibility of something that was a technology of the ancient time that we might have lost. But we don't actually know what it is yet to know whether we lost it. So, um, I, and so there may be a few exceptions, but yeah. generally as a rule, um, technologies don't go extinct, which I think um, has some implications in understanding that, in fact, attempts to prohibit technology are just doomed. Because it's really, really, really hard to eliminate things once they're invented. Um, I mean, we can't even do it deliberately. And so, um, this is important. And when we come to, you know, understanding what we want to do with technologies, particularly ones that we think are harmful, is that we basically can't get rid of them. We have to do something else with them. Yeah, it's um, quite fascinating. I think one of the besides the fact that these ideas can be reconstructed in ways it's harder to reconstruct a woolly mammoth, at least for now. Right. But it's also a tribute to our wealth. Um, we can afford to farm in a old-fashioned way, and so uh, you know it's, it reminds me a little bit of Colonial Williamsburg. If you go to Colonial Williamsburg, there are people making shoes by hand as a tourist uh, attraction. Um, so that technology and all the tools, as you point out, I'm sure they're the same, very very similar to the ones that were actually used at the time. But that's um, that's an incredible luxury that we enjoy because we're very wealthy. Yeah. Um, well, but but actually, I think it, it does point to some one aspect of the tech team, which is that generally um, it adds options rather than just re- replaces them. I mean, I think I mean, th- this is. Uh, I think we're kind of very slow to understand is is that the uh, we we tend to define technology as anything that was invented after we were born. <laughs> But in fact, most of the technology surrounding us was invented long ago and, yeah. and is very persistent. And so we have, we're surrounded by ancient technologies that we're still using concrete, um, fired brick. I mean, you know, huge parts of our cities are just this kind of material, this kind of technology. And, um, and so usually what we're doing is it's like, it's like kind of like in ecology, you're adding species, you're infilling new species into the mix, uh, into the system. And sometimes they're replaced, but most often they're just supplemented. And that is actually more the pattern of the technium. And one of the themes of the book is the expansion of choice. And I couldn't agree more that it is what makes part of what makes our humanity uh, allow it to express itself. Um, one of the other charms of the book is the fact that you're not a, you're not a salesman. Uh, you're not a cheerleader for technology. You confront the costs, and I'd like you to talk about that now, the mix. So you, you basically say there's these incredible benefits from technology, and you should say a little bit about that. 
But you also point out, as critics complain, yeah, but it produces all these problems along the way. And yet you argue that the balance is probably net positive, and you provide some evidence. So what, yeah. what's the evidence? Well, so, so the, the um, you know, uh, I think truthfulness demands that we acknowledge that every new invention will create almost as many problems as solutions. And, and um, it's to the point where um, most of the problems we have in our lives today are Technogenic. They're actually created by previous technologies, and um, that you know that we're inventing technologies to kind of remedy them. But inevitably, most of the problems we will have in the future will be caused by the technologies that we're making today to yeah. kind of cause to cure the technology the problems we had in the past. And so, there there is a very real sense in which, um, if we look around, there are huge, huge problems caused by technology inventions, and um, I would even go so far as to say that a technology is really not powerful and revolutionary unless it is sort of revolutionarily and can be powerfully abused. Uh, right now, we're, we all, and myself included, sing the praises of the Internet as a, as, as a most powerful technology. Well, we have not yet seen it been, be powerfully abused, but it will be. It's so so. Um, oh, and there's plenty of abuses. Yeah, yeah. There's there's spam at the personal and, level and crime and stuff. Yeah, and, I'm and, thinking more about distraction. I'm, I'm thinking about looking yeah, at people. Yeah, well, I'm, not talk- I'm talking about really powerful. I mean, okay. I, I think we haven't really seen how powerfully it can be abused. Okay, fair and, enough. And so, um, <laughs> great. And so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have a nice day. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but that's you know. But having said that, having said that, okay, um, these new inventions will produce new problems. Um, there, there's that that leads kind of to to most of the techno elites conclusion, the, the orthodoxy right now, the conventional wisdom, which is that technology is just neutral. It's it's a, it's a neutral tool, and you can use it for harm or for good. And yeah. at, at a certain level, um, it does seem like you know that's what it is. It's it's got you can if you invent a hammer. You can use the hammer to kill or to build a house. Now, what I'm saying is, yeah, that's true to a certain extent, but there's something really interesting going on, which is when you invent a hammer, you suddenly invent a brand-new choice that did not exist before, which was you know, to use this for good or for, or for harm. And that choice, which did not exist before, is in itself a good, a new good, a tiny new good. And that tiny new good moves the balance slightly, very, very slightly, in favor of the good. And um, it's very slight, but I think that very slight is all we need because um, if, through technology, we can actually create just a tenth of a percent more than we use technology, to des- the same technology to destroy, then that tenth of a percent compounded over time is what we call progress. That's that's what progress is. It's, it's the slight compounding of choices over time, and that compounding may only operate at the level of a fraction of a percent, and that fraction of a percent is given to us by the fact that we're inventing new choices with the technologies. So how do you respond to the... And you give some wonderful examples of of evidence that we, we're making progress in the most dramatic... We've talked about many times on this program. Lifespan is a 
expansion of lifespan is a the decline in infant mortality, the decline in maternal mortality. You don't mention, but I don't think, but it's another part of this. All the health benefits, playing tennis on an artificial knee. It's it's it, you know, at seventy five is 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 nice. So we have all these expansions of of lifespan and quality of life. The one of the views of the critic, one of the arguments of the critics is is that that's temporary. Uh, that we're abusing through our material, the vortex of materialism. We're sucking the life force out of the planet, and it's all going to come tumbling down. We're, you know, we're driving over an abyss. We're we're about to hit the place where the road is missing. Um, how do you respond to that? Yeah, uh, I, I, first of all, we, we have to acknowledge the fact that, um, again, as I said, most of the problems we see in the world, technogenic, that that um, environmental degradation, um, the um, impact on the climate, impact on um, the natural landscape, um, and more, one of my own concerns in terms of the um, pervasive um, way in which uh, chemicals are kind of in the environment and moving into our bodies, endocrine disruptors, we have really no idea what the chronic exposures to this stuff does. There, there, there are lots of um, problems caused, environmental problems on nature caused by technology. But, but um, uh, here, here's what I would say about there's two things to say about them. One is that um, uh, what in, in the normal accounting we don't actually uh, account for the sort of environmental problems that the nature that, that nature itself without our technology presents to us okay so so um, uh, you know disease and other aspects of, of nature that without technology we're also incredibly mortal and we kind of negative yeah we tend to kind of ignore those and say say you know is, is, is the uh, um, is, is the impact of, of that? And the fact that you know, um, death for every birth, and in, in the biosphere, there's a death, and, and that's part of the part of the process. But that's a that, that that's a minor thing. But that's just something we should keep account of. The, the second thing I would say about it is that um, these problems are real, but that so far there has there's not a single technology that we've invented that we cannot or have not been able to invent a more greener version of, and. That, to me, suggests that um, because the technium is an extension of the evolutionary force, it is not inherently anti-life. It's not inherently incompatible with life. It's most definitely compatible. And so it ha- its potential, is, 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 its inherent potential is to be compatible with life. When we could even say that technology wants clean water because it, to make some of these computer chips requires water cleaner than what we drink. And there is every reason to, to, to believe that, that the technium has the potential to produce living, increasing living standards without major degradation of, of the world, of the natural world. And um, we find that really kind of maybe hard to see right now because I think actually... Um, the technium has stages or phases or developmental stages, much like uh, organism. And I think some of the practice, some of the technologies of the industrial age were kind of like our terrible twos in humans. It was they're kind of 
selfish, grimy, dirty, um, self-centered. And um, I think with the advent of more complex technologies like the Internet and communication technologies, that has revealed to us a different facet, a more mature facet, a more organic facet of technology, showing to us that, that things don't have to be in that kind of inhumane, unfriendly industrial way that we can actually that, that inherently the technium is more um, biophilic and we inherently I think that's the drift that it's moving towards and so we can you know help it to accelerate that we can help it steer in, in into its inevitability faster and I think um, the fact that we are Constantly capable of in, uh, inventing things that are greener than what has come before suggests that the answer to a bad technology is not less technology, but better technology. Talk a little bit. You allude to this phenomenon in the book that I'm about to bring up, and but you don't talk about it in much detail. And I wonder if you've—I'm sure you've thought about it. Why is it? Do you think that we have a certain? romance uh, and nostalgia for both nature on the one hand, which, as you point out, can give you cancer and um, it can drown you and landslide you and earthquake you and do all kinds of brutal things. You know, We have a certain romance about nature and we have a certain, I think, related romance about some technology, not others. Uh, you give the example in the book of I think it's Wendell Berry who likes certain types of farming technology, but not others. 1940. If it's you know, it's if it's before 1940, it's beautiful. It's it's human. It's natural. If it's after 1940, it's artificial and and it's it's too much. Why do you think we have those urges, those tastes? Yeah, I, I think. Um, or are they just the result of no, no, know, something else? So, so this has to do a little bit with my um, exposure to to the Amish, whom. I, I found a great admiration for, and um, th there were many th surprises about the Amish. One is that they were, we tend to think of them as, as Luddites, but they were in no way Luddites. They actually are adopting technology, that, but they're very, very selective in their adoption. They, um, you know, they don't, have not adopted cars, although they will ride in them. They don't own them. They, they own horse and buggy, they have, you know, dress and gowns and bonnets and no zippers, but at the same time, they buy disposable diapers, they eat Cheerios for breakfast, they have chemical fertilizers, and they are really into genetically modified crops. So um, that, that mix does not seem to make sense to, 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 at first, but what I'm mostly trying to suggest is that they are very selective in what they adopt and don't adopt. And... Um, what that gives them, though, is really interesting because they do do many things by hand, you know, pitching uh, hay into the haystacks rather than having a big machine do it, um, um, uh, you know, uh, milking cows, not entirely by hand, but kind of, you know, not, not using robots and other things, um, chopping maybe their firewood by hand. What that gives them, the fact that they don't have all these labor-saving devices, is, is it gives them a lot of leisure time, and they're really curious. They've they, they've optimized their lives to produce leisure, and most importantly, for this discussion, a sense of who they are, a, a, a kind of a, a certainty about their roles, 
and um, and a kind of a satisfaction and community um, togetherness and family support that we find really hard to get in our modern lives, and but but the and so so they so they so that's the romance part. That's that's the attractive aspect of uh, of their lives. The, but there's another there's a cost to that. There's a price, and that's the part that's a little bit hidden. The cost of this is two. One is is that they um, they're not so self sufficient by any stretch of the imagination. They require outsiders to mine the metal that they use for their farm machinery to. Um, have the factories that make the rubber, the smelly factories that they are not going to put in their backyard, um, uh, to generate the, um, the t- wells of oil that run their diesel engines, and so they're they're not participating in that, and more importantly, they're not inventing the new things um, that, like the cell phones, that they're probably going to adopt. But more importantly, the cost of this is that they cut off. The choices and possibilities. So they, they, they maximize their contentedness and, and the romance and the great sense of who they are by basically eliminating the choices of what one can do. So if you are a woman in Amish, you have one role, which is a mother. If you're um, a boy, you have two roles. You can be either a farmer or a tradesman in the shop in the back. And that's it. They're, they're not making mathematicians. They're not making uh, musicians. They're not making um, uh, people who are going to in, invent or doctors um, who are going to invent the next medical breakthrough. And so I think we are uh, attracted to um, the some technologies, the simple things, because it reinforces or, or it, it, it doesn't challenge us in who we are. There's all this new stuff that we're making, the new technologies, every single one of them from robots to gene therapy, um, nibble away about our identity. They're saying, you know, like even all this stuff on Facebook, all the social media, it's like, where do I end and someone else begin? Um, what's me? Um, who who am I? Um, and then you know, with robots and other stuff, it's like, well, what are humans about? What are, what are we for? And so all these new things are real challenge to our identity. The Amish don't have that because they're not kind of a, they're not engaged with that. And things that challenge our identity are one of the things that they keep out. And I think um, there is a huge attraction to be Amish-like and to say, well, I, you know. Nature, our human nature is fixed. It's not going to move. It's not going to change. We're going to keep it that way. On the other side, um, all these new technologies are kind of reinforcing the fact that we're still inventing ourselves. We're still deciding, and we're still having to to decide what we want humans to be. And I think it's a lot scarier, but in the end, probably more attractive to most people. And as you, and you have a chapter in the book on the Amish, and it's. Uh... It's an option that not very many people find attractive, uh, but the ones who do like it. Um, I'm reminded of the fact that I keep the Jewish Sabbath, which means I'm sort of roughly about 15% Amish. 
Uh, I step off the grid from sunset on Friday to sun to dark on Sunday on Saturday night. Uh-huh. And what's interesting to me about that, it, my non-Jewish or non-Orthodox friends admire that. Yeah. They often say to me, I wish I could do that. Right, right, Now, right. like the Amish, there's a religious belief that makes it easier to accept that yeah. constraint. Right, right. What is fascinating to me is that without that religious belief, it's and this gets back to what technology wants, your, your BlackBerry, your iPhone, and your laptop and your desktop, they want you to check them for email. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're saying to you, Sometimes it's a beep. It doesn't even. They don't even have to. They can be off, right, right. and they're saying, "Come over here." It's interesting right. that that siren is very difficult to say no to, and that most people, even though they like the charm of the Amish or the uh, the Jewish Sabbath, if you said, "Well, you can do it," just from Friday to Saturday, just say, "I'm not yeah. going to watch TV. I'm not going to turn on my BlackBerry. I'm not going to watch. The, I'm not going to get on the internet. Yeah, I'm not yeah, going to get yeah. in my car. I'm not going to go to the mall." But they can't. I don't know of anyone who does that. There may be some people who literally do that on a, a time basis, but I don't know of anyone other than religious people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, in fact, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I was doing it for a while, and not really, I mean, yeah, the Sabbath was religious, but not, I mean, I wasn't, I mean, in, in the Christian circles, there's no, um, unlike the Jewish, there's, there's no Sabbath um, admonishment to not turn on your computer. Right. But I actually think, but 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 I, um, I actually think that, that it's incredibly healthy to to to, to do that for non-religious reasons, and yeah. I think it's and it's for the same reasons why you rest from work. It's not a declaration that work is bad. It's actually because work is so good that you want the Sabbath from it, and. Um, there's a side benefit, which is, you know, I think the Amish would also talk about in their world, which is for 25 hours, I'm I'm a little more attentive to my wife and children, right. and I enjoy their company in a way I can't right. when the email is saying, over here. Right, right. Um, yeah, what's interesting is, is, you know, my Sabbath use or, you know, my Sabbath vacation <laughs> from email, I actually was also using the sort of Jewish version rather than the Christian version, so mm-hmm. for me it was from sundown on Saturday to um, Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, again, beginning, beginning in the uh, in, in the afternoon. So, um, I'm yeah, I'm suggesting that not only the Sabbath, but also kind of jubilees where you take seasons off, yeah. is um, uh, part of what I'm kind of trying to articulate after the, this book, my kind of new thing I'm writing right now about techno literacy. Which is this sort of what we what we what we need to master is not the individual technologies, but the technium itself and how the technium works, and the fact that you you know you do want to have sabbaticals and jubilees, you do want to um, uh, understand that you're kind of in a permanent newbie mind, you know, and all these other uh, things that I think are essential skills about learning how to deal with the technium itself as a system, much as you might have kind of you know natural history or something. Um, so it kind of is like the natural history of the technium. If you were going to be a guide or going to live off it, you want to know how the, the system itself works. And so, um, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's 
I, I, it is hard for people because it, it does want that. Um, and I, but I think, and there is a romance to to, to the simpler version. I, I think those, I think I think that duality is just baked into the nature of technology because we are self-created. When you're self-created, you're both the creator and the created. You're both the master and the slave. And I think that duality is going to be present, that tension is going to be present in the technology and the technium as far as we are. But I think we can certainly get better at, under, at, at you know at the being the master part of it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so I, you know, that basically that's what techno literacy is, is, is upping our ability to say no. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, yeah, I, I, there are many people who find that a feature, not a bug on either side of that, right? Um, right. So it's a fascinating thing how our culture will evolve on that. Let's let's get back to the book. There's a directly there, there's a incredibly similar to the discussion we had a few minutes ago about the technologies that never die. There's another claim you make that's equally hard to believe, but I think you're right, um, and I'm sure you've been challenged a lot on this also. Which is there's a certain inevitability to evolution in the biological world, um, but more interestingly, for the purpose of the book, the technological world that almost every invention that you can think of was invented simultaneously by a bunch of people working totally independently suggesting that that there's a force of progress or knowledge creation that is steered by again no one's intention but by the previous technologies that that have been discovered so talk about that it's amazing yeah that that was actually something that that really surprised me i did not have that in my mind before I wrote the book. I was uh, the conclusion that the that the sequence of technology is inevitable was something that I resisted for a very long time. I didn't like that idea in, in the literature that's called technological determinism, yeah, and I didn't depressing. want to, I didn't want to be one of those. Yeah, it sounds horrible. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, you're subjugating the human free will and stuff. Yeah. And so, um, uh, so I really resisted it, but but I think. Um, it, the evidence clearly shows that independent, simultaneous invention of, of uh, inventions is the norm. That is normal, and we have an intuitive sense of that because that's what the patent office is sort of all about. If, if, if it wasn't, we wouldn't really need the patent office because someone would invent something, and there it is. But, yeah, but somebody would copy it. So it's just there to keep somebody from cheating. That's that's one way to think. That's about one it. way. That's one of the. That's one of it. But there's also. Um, it's also trying to sort out priorities, and um, w- w- it's most common that um, when something is being invented, someone somewhere else is independently also inventing it. And if um, the best way to understand that is to again go back to the kind of ecological metaphor, um, because no technology, particularly in modern eras, is a standalone device. It requires all these other Supporting technologies, and when all those supporting technologies are sort of in place and have been invented, the next adjacent uh, invention is, is basically almost inevitable in its existence. Who who is able to um, invent it? Um, it's not completely random because you have to kind of be in a position. And the great inventors are those who basically put themselves; you know, they're buying a lot of lottery tickets, basically, uh, and so. They're they're putting themselves in the position to 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 be the lucky person, and so to speak. 
it's not just luck, but it's the idea that these things are inevitable when the time is right, when all the precursor inventions have been invented. And so um, what that suggests is that there is sort of this progression, not in a linear sense, but in a kind of a, a sense of a, a developmental progression where um, it's going to, the, the technology, will, when the time is ready, it's going to go through that and that there's a convergence which is taken from the idea of convergent evolution in the biological world, there are certain channels that invention will go through that are, these channels are, have two constraints. They have a negative constraint and a positive constraint, which is kind of propelling them through these bottlenecks. Um, and we see in the natural world um, the idea that there are certain forms that life is going to come back to again and again sometimes governed by the fact that the physics govern it, and sometimes governed by the fact that there's inherent biases in anything based around DNA and DNA code. You can't produce Carbon. everything. Yeah. It's going to produce only some things. And so you have this convergence. And so um, the idea of convergence as, long, as well as the idea that there's um, the inevitability of a lot of the um, inventions um, suggests that much of what happens in the technium is kind of wired into the very nature of the, of the technium itself and is somewhat, not entirely, but somewhat independent of our efforts in, in our individual uh, geniuses. Although, of course, <clears throat> the speed is going to be affected a little bit and also you know, the, the institutions that society, cultures, nations use to reward and punish and allow – Technology to flourish or not, obviously. Right. I, I would be very quick to say that while the larger macro forms are inevitable, it's like saying, you know, um, yeah, four four legged quadrupeds are inevitable, but the species are not inevitable, right. and and those species, the expressions of these inevitable ideas, the ideas that basically can't be patented because they're inevitable, but the expressions of them. Are, are unpredictable and they really are dependent on human genius and, and they are the things that make the most difference to us. So while the internet might have been inevitable, the, the expression, the particular expression of the internet was not, whether it was going to be open or closed, uh, institutional or transnational, whether it was commercial or nonprofit, all those things make a huge, huge difference. Those things were not inevitable. Those things are up to us and our choices and they are the kind of speciation of, of the inevitable technology. One side thought that I thought about after reading that is that, you know, we have this great reverence for creative people, uh, correctly, I think, maybe. Uh, your suggestion of inevitability causes you, as the reader, to start to doubt that a little bit. As you point out, so many things that you thought, well, if we hadn't had so-and-so do it, well, actually, there was somebody working on it already. It would have been six months later and – the human enterprise wouldn't have been affected that much. But I feel like we overvalue then, particularly because of what you said, the inventor, and we undervalue the implementer, um, yeah. which is intangible, harder to – it's less glorious. We did a podcast with Amar Day on this. Um, you know, implementing and marketing and packaging and, and making the invention useful in many ways is perhaps the more important thing. And I, and I think about great books. A lot of, of our greatest books – don't have 
I'm not going to suggest your book because your book, of course, is different, as are mine. But a lot of great books don't have anything new to say. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Part of the reason they're great is they write the idea in a way, they package the idea in a way that you can absorb it and remember it and implement it and and sing to it, harmonize with it in a way that, that maybe you couldn't if it had been done by someone with a different different style. Yeah, yeah. And actually, our intellectual cop. Uh, property laws kind of recognize that the, you, you can't kind of copyright an idea. It's kind of generic and inevitable. You can only copyright the expression of it, and we honor that. And so the, the kind of great book that you were just talking about, the ideas are there, but what they've done is that, is that genius of translating that into kind of a local time and place in the culture and giving an expression that really means something to people. That is not inevitable. It's not predictable. It is something that's very choiceful, and um, uh, you know, I do, in the book, uh, in my book, there's a little chart about um, the idea that you know, the, the more general uh, the idea is, the more people will have it, and as it as it becomes more articulated and more specific, down to the market to be implemented, the, the, as it becomes implemented, it has to become more specific, and as it becomes more specific, it is. Um, less inevitable. Okay, so it comes down to kind of an expression. So the person who does bring it to market, there is a value. They should get reward because it is difficult and um, only a few will be able to actually bring it that far. So many people, thousands of people have the idea of kind of, you know, the jet pack or the invisibility cloak or Things that we, the, phone, know, the phone you can see the caller on. Right, exactly, the picture phone. But each, t- each step in trying to make that implement and real and get it to many, many people, um, it has to become more and more specific, and so it becomes less and less inevitable in its final form. So you have a shocking chapter in the book uh, of sorts, shocking in a way, of where you say that the Unabomber was, was onto something. Uh, talk about what the Unabomber had right and what he had wrong, and if you have a chance, you can weave in some of the things you have to say about how people choose to live in cities, because it reminded me of that in the earlier yeah. part of the book, and you have such interesting things to say about that. So, so the idea about the Unabomber, who's really with Ted Kaczynski, um, he was a serial killer who was bombing people who were in favor of technology, kind of, who knows how he chose his subjects, um, but he, he killed some, maimed killed, others. Killed some, maimed twenty-three others or something. And um, he was operating on the idea that um, uh, the cause, the, the civilization was actually, or at least industrial civilization was actually the the, the problem, and not the cause. I mean, not the the remedy for anything. It was it was actually the the thing that need, need to be eliminated. And um, I uh, announced in my, my chapter that the Unabomber was right, and he was right about one big thing. He was, of course, not right about either, I think, his conclusions or his uh, actions and or his justification for his actions, which are, of course, completely condemnable. But what he's right about is the fact that he saw and... Um, he saw very clearly that the Technium was a system that had its own agenda. And um, he was a mathematician and wrote very logically, and I was sort of really kind of um, 
horrified to realize that of all the people I'd read, that he had actually the best explanation uh, about the reality of this technium that I've been kind of talking about. Slightly alarming. And so I had to, you know, I was kind of reduced to quoting him rather than anyone, any other theoretician because there was no one else who was writing as clearly about how pervasive, how, how interdependent, how cohesive this technium is and, and, and why, in his view, that um, it, you couldn't really even try to co-opt it because... Um, you kind of had to use technology to even try and take it down, which is what he was trying to do. Um, you, you just just by using technology at all, you were kind of participating in it and making it greater. Yeah, it's easy to say, well, oh, use use technology, use bombs, but of course, as you say, a lot of his victims were far away. Was he supposed to go strangle them with his hands? Right, he, right. you know, he's you know. And so, so he, but but. But he was—he's actually only one of, of of a small group of other what I call collapsitarians, people who are who are uh, interested in bringing down civilization. Um, but most of those folks are, you know, writing their missives and manifestos on Mac computers at Starbucks, <laughs> and. Um, I'm not joking. No, I know. There's <laughs> a, um, a long tradition in that of that. And, and um, at least uh, Ted Kaczynski made a halfway attempt to live in a shack in Montana. However, even he was completely dependent on his uh, rides into town to Walmart to buy his stuff. He 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 didn't he didn't go all the way because it is too difficult. I mean, we are too our humanity is too dependent on technology to give it up completely, and he kind of couldn't go all that way. Well, self-sufficiency is the road to poverty, as I like to say, and if he'd literally, <laughs> he'd literally tried to live by himself, he would have died, uh, probably would have died in the Montana winter. Exactly, winter. and so, um, however, um, he, he was right to see that this is a system with its own agenda, and uh, it was interesting to me that most of the people who see that are people who have criticisms or don't want technology, and it's very few of the of the people who are boosters of technology, like myself, and so um, I was actually quoting him at length, in part because it was so clear, but also in part because I wanted to to make it clear that seeing the the technium as a system was not um, a, a matter of being biased in favor of it, but even the most severe critics of it could see that as well. And um, I disagree with. Um, Kaczynski and the Unabomber, because he says that the agenda that this thing has is to rob people of their freedom. And he makes a very case, and you can see through that this was a personal thing with him, where he felt it was dehumanizing, um, it was controlling, um, it was robbing him of his individual freedom, and therefore it had to be, and others he would say, and therefore it had to be completely destroyed, not just amended, not just uh, fixed, but actually just eliminated from the face of the earth. I I conclude a different, a vastly different um, conclusion, which is that actually what this brings us is increasing choices and freedoms. I don't think Tekazitsky had very many freedoms in living in the shack. I think he had a lot of latitude but he didn't have a lot of actual degrees of freedom. And I think that's what technology 
does bring us is actually increasing choices, possibilities, options, diversity, differences, and those are all good. That's what we get. That's why we move to cities because cities offer more of those. He was moving to the country where there was less of them. He was living in a shack that most of the people in the world are trying to escape from. And they come to the cities, as you point out in the book, in beautiful writing. They they come to miserable places that are filled with horrible smells and and human waste. And yet, they don't go. Well, they don't want to go back to that to that village because no, there's something don't. else that they get in return, and right. it's deeply they're, human. They're, they're there for, because they have at least a chance to have their kids educated. They have at least a chance of getting medicine if they needed it, because they have at least a chance of doing something different than hoeing potatoes if they care to. So they they put up with very, you know, conditions that are in some ways not as romantic or beautiful as the uh, little hamlet up in the mountains that they left from. Um, and so they're leaving Ted Kaczynski's shack to come to the city to increase their possibilities. And I think Ted, Ted Kaczynski had his own personal problems and he um, didn't see that, in fact... What technology was bringing was choices and opportunities. He's right that there was environmental, you know, degradation that we should overcome, that we should fix, that we should diminish. Um, and 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 I think we can, and, and we have that choice too. We've done a, quite a bit of it, actually, right? We've, yes, we, we've we moved away from burning forests and, yeah. and polluting the air. With, with I mean, I, I, I think we are making progress. I think there's still a lot to do, and um, but I think that we see that inherently this, that the technology, the tech team can move in that direction. Um, we're almost out of time. I want to close with an issue that uh, a lot of people talk about, and I want to preface it with a story I was reminded of in our earlier conversation that I don't think I've ever told on the program, which is uh, one of, it's probably my favorite cartoon. It, it shows a, a newlywed couple in their car. They're, they're leaving the church. People are throwing rice. The, this car is covered with uh, you know, just married and all kinds of stuff, and there's stuff tied to the back of the car. And the groom, the husband now, he's got his um, – He's got his hand on the radio knob of, of the car, and he says, I'll just check the score. <laughs> and and the, the cartoon is called The First Straw. Yeah, yeah. It's a real work of genius. I don't know who did that. If anybody knows who did that cartoon, everyone, and if everyone has that cartoon out there, I'd love to see it. <laughs> but that's a way in which I think certainly a lot of men struggle to stay off the internet, stay off their yeah. Their computer because they want the latest score. They they don't even want the latest score. They want to know what the, whether it was a ball or a strike. Um, I already see it in my sons. They my daughter doesn't struggle with it, but my sons struggle with it. I think it's a sex based problem, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but that's one sense in which technology quote wants us to check it does kind of control us if we're not careful. We've talked a little bit about how you might avoid that, but there are people worried about a much bigger form of control. Um, the technological singularity is one name for it, that, that this technium is going to not just have some autonomy, some selfhood, but it's going to actually take over. It's, yeah. not, it's not going to just influence our behavior and the quality of our life. It's going to rule the world. Yeah. Um, what do you think of that claim? Where do you stand on it? And, yeah, um, yeah, um, and how do we, if it's true, what do we do? Yeah, 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 no. So, so – um, 
smart people say that. I'm a skeptic, but I don't know yeah, much about yeah. it. Yeah, so, so there, there, there are several different scenarios. Um, first of all, I would say there's a bunch of scenarios for this phenomena of the singularity. And secondly, oh, I think there are, are other scenarios beyond that. But I, just kind of as a first straw, I would say we would have to entertain all the scenarios. I think it's, I think that is a plausibility, but I think there are more, there are other plausible scenarios as well. But there, 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 I think there is one version of that that I do think is not plausible. And um, let me tell you that version, which I don't think is implausible. And th- that version, you don't think it's plausible, or is it? Is it? Is this something I need to worry about, or I can? I don't have to. I, I think this is one you don't have to worry okay. about. And so this is the the extreme version of Ray Kurzweil, who wrote the book "The Singularity Is Near," who is right. actually the one of the promoters of this. Yep. And this goes this way, and and it's kind of very specific, which is probably the reason why maybe I don't think you have to worry about it. So it's this idea that by the year 2039, I think it's, he has it down, or 2040 or something, um, we will have made a, an intelligence that's smarter than us, and that, super, that, that, that greater intelligence will have made something smarter than itself. And the rate at which us making that thing smarter and it making the next smarter thing keeps increasing having, you know, by, by some half-life increasing faster, doubling, which is what the trend we have right now. So Moore's Law keeps accelerating the pace of computer power so that at this some time, you know, in uh, 2039, we make something that's smarter than us, and then, like, you know, maybe just uh, a year later, it can make something smarter than itself, and then six months later, it makes something that's smarter than itself, and then three months later, and so you see this thing kind of accelerating, and then almost kind of like within a matter of days or weeks or hours or minutes, it's made something so smart that um, it can invent or can solve basically all our problems. It just can think through and do a, simulations in its mind and everything that um, anything we can think of it kind of is making. And that the major thing that it's going to actually make is um, going to solve our problem of mortality and it will invent immortality for us and anybody who's living at that we can just it will tell us how to live forever and so I'm just uh, going to mention a name we haven't that hasn't come up that is often comes up in our program which is Hayek and and the knowledge problem so the idea that that's that one source of computing I guess it could link to a lot of computers but the idea that somehow it would know so much as if data were the source of wisdom. I don't know. It strikes me as a bizarre and strange yeah, and actually, silly call, idea, actually. I call it actually thinkism. Yeah. There you go. That's a good name for it. Uh, I have a road post on thinkism and how this idea that just thinking about things will solve problems is completely erroneous. But anyway, they're, 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 this, is, this is an extreme case of thinkism. And what um, the idea then is, of course, that all you need to do is just you need to, to, to live long enough to, to the singularity, and then you're immortal. And so this is why Ray is taking 250 pills a day to make sure that he lives to make the, the bridge to the singularity, because on the other side of this is this sort of, it's like a rapture moment. It's, it's like utopia. You, you, everything is solved. And, and, and so 
that, and then also, by the way, you, you, he'll be able to recreate your ancestors, and so Ray's going to resurrect his father. Yeah, well, it's called. There's a name for this. It's called religion, and it's a it's a primal belief in. We've talked about religion already. That, that belief is in a lot of religions. Yeah. This is a new one. Right. So that that I think is very. Although it's based in so-called reason. I don't know. I think it's very improbable that, that this will happen. I'm with you there. And, um, but there, there are another version of it, and that other version of it is, well... Um, There's a creepy version, isn't there? Well, that's not creepy. I don't <laughs> well, it's, it's not as creepy as that they're going to enslave us and... Oh, yeah, 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 right, exactly. That would be that the other one? one. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, we don't, they don't need us. The yeah. thing doesn't need us anymore. So that's, yeah, that's the creepy version. Cut off our food supplies. Right, they can right. have clean air. I don't, you know. Sure. So, and, and, and that one, actually, I mean, I would say that that's possible. That's, to me, that's a lot more possible than, <laughs> than that we're going to have immortality. But um, because that's the sinkism. Um, I, I, I think there are there's, there are other versions of it that are a little bit milder, the kind of a weak version, which says that um, that there's a phase change, that 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 uh, uh, kind of intelligence that we make, that there's speed and acceleration and 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 the degree of that um, and and the ubiquity um, creates something that is going to be very hard for us to see right now because it, it kind of just just like pre-language. Uh, it was impossible for the pre-language proto-humans to actually envision what language would bring. And I think this could be something at the equivalent of inventing language, and it could be very, very difficult to imagine what would happen on the other side. And, th- and I think that's, that, to me, is a plausible scenario, but again, it's not the only scenario. Um, and so um, back to the question of, like, well, you know, is, will the tech just sort of, Become so big that it takes over, and I and I think, yes, I think we have to entertain that that scenario, but I don't think it's the only scenario. I think um, I think the fact that we are part of the technium, that there's right currently six billion of us that are part of this thing, um, that that I, I, I think we can. I mean, I don't see a direction where the autonomy continues to just take over. Um, you know, we have a nurture nature thing in our own in our own being. Uh, the culture has not taken over our genes. Um, we're, we're, it's very hard to unravel what we owe to our environment, what we owe to our genetics. Um, I, I I can easily imagine that the thing can become more powerful, and yet we're still never able to unravel the influence of humans from the technium itself. We become more cybernetic or cyborgian or symbiotic. Um, and so I, I think the idea of becoming symbiotic is, 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 is a second scenario than to the one where, they did, where we take over and they eliminate us. And so um, and I think there are probably other scenarios that we need to consider as well. I think you said we take over, suggesting that you're somehow on the cyborg side already. You meant they, right? The, the, or yeah. It, the technium. Right. Uh, I guess um, you know, – my first thought when I hear those kind of stories is is actually is dismissive, to be honest. Uh, most of those scenarios, um, I, I don't, at least in the ways that they're described. I mean, I, obviously we could evil people can get hold of technology, and obviously we can make the world a better place without technology. So it's not like um, those are the only choices that, that we might envision. But I guess the part that's is a little bit alarming. Is as an economist, I'm always saying things like, as as some economists do, that you know it's hard to 
you can't repeal the laws of economics, that market forces can't be stopped. They can only, you, you know, you, you play with them at your peril. And I, I do think one of the things I've learned from thinking about this from you is that uh, our our ability to steer the technium may, may be limited. Uh, and I think you know, my only yeah. thought, and I'll, I'll let you close and react to this, is the better we understand it, certainly the better we can understand the forces that that could be steered productively as opposed to destructively. Yes, and, and so um, I, I agree. Our ability to steer it may be limited, but there's really no way. But but and then but whatever ability we should have, we should maximize. And I think the only way we're going to understand where we have ability to steer is to understand where we don't. And so. Um, I, I, that, that's why I want to ask what technology wants because we don't have to necessarily do everything that technology wants, but we certainly have to understand what it wants in order to be able to exert whatever we want where we want it. So, so I think it's really important to kind of understand how this system is working in order to take whatever leverage we do have to steer it. And um, I think if we just uh, assume that we're steering 100%, which is how people who don't believe it has any autonomy are. They're saying, no, we're totally in control. I think that's a recipe for being blindsided. I'm not saying that, no, we have no control. I'm saying we have some control, but in order to understand what control we have, we have to understand what it is that technology wants. My guest today has been Kevin Kelly. Thanks for being part of EconTalk, Kevin. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.